Welcome, Let's Talk Books. I'm Robin Van Auken, a writer and a teacher. My guest and I want to help you write your own book. We're sharing ideas about inspiration, book publication, and promotion. You can find the episode show notes, a free novel, guides, and tutorials at robinvanauken.com. Enjoy the show. It's Robin Van Auken, the wholehearted author, and today I'm trying something a little bit different, something a little bit unique. First of all, I'm not going to be talking to anybody else. I'm going to be talking to you. I don't have a conversation with somebody asking them about their books, what they like to do. I mean, I, I do have a whole lot of people that I need to talk to. I've got a list of people who want to be on the show. But today I thought I would try something new because... um I've been asked to introduce podcasting into a class I teach at Lycoming College, and I started exploring on the internet looking for podcasting software that my students could use that wouldn't be a huge investment. I found Anchor. Um, Actually, it was introduced to me by another student of mine at Lycoming College. Jessica Wise was a former student of mine, and she creates her podcast using Anchor. And she showed us how to, you know, download this little mobile app, put it on our phones, and use it for podcasting last year. But that's not the route I decided to go with my podcast. Instead, I've been sitting on my computer, talking into my Yeti microphone, using Skype to record phone conversations with people that I'm talking to on the phone, or sitting on my window seat with a guest. And it's worked out pretty well. But in order to teach Anchor, I need to know Anchor. And the only way to get to know Anchor is to try it. And that's the reason for today's episode. So I am talking to you via the mobile app on my computer desktop, not my phone this time, called Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R. And this is completely free. It comes with the ability for you to record short conversations, bundle several of these short conversations up into one big episode. It has free messaging available. So if somebody wanted to call in and leave a message, I could include that in my conversation. Uh, Basically, if people had a question, I could do a QA. and a I could answer their questions very simply. There's free transitions, which are little tiny bits of music that you could put in between, little snippets of conversation. And I'm going to try that out, too. So when you listen to this episode, give me a few, you know, breaks here. I'm trying something completely new, and I'm trying to be brave. Just sitting here, chit-chatting with you, experimenting, failing, and learning as I fail. So... Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi there. Today I want to talk to you about How to Be Alone. This is a book by Sarah Maitland, and it's a book I picked up on a visit to Williamston, Massachusetts, when my husband and I were visiting the Clark Museum. We had a little business up there. It had to do with um, an art restoration so our downtime was spent viewing the museums, and one of the um, one of the places we stopped was um, on Water Street to get 
lunch and we happened to walk past a bookstore. So of course I had to go in. It's like a magnet to me. We're talking about a massive old building on Water Street and it had floor to ceiling windows around the front and one side. So there was a lot of light coming in. There were book stacks that were almost as high as the ceiling as well. And there was an entire section just devoted to um, children's books. But what I enjoyed doing was walking around, taking a look at all the books that they had to find. And I picked up a tiny blue paperback from a publishing company called um, The School of Life. And the idea of how to be alone was tickling my fancy because I, I was just getting ready to go on a solo camping trip. This is something I had thought about for a while, almost like a small writer's retreat. And my plan was to do exactly what I did. I, uh, my husband and I took our little camper up to Bald Eagle State Park near Mill Hall, Pennsylvania, and parked it. And I stayed in the camper with my dog for almost a week, just the two of us. We were able to go for nice long walks and not be disturbed. We were able to cook whatever I wanted to cook and um, sit around the campfire. And I had my laptop with me. I was able to put together about 20,000 words on a novel I was working on. And I also read four or five books while I was there, including this one with Sarah Maitland on how to be alone. And personally, I think that there's a lot of joy in being alone. It's not for everyone. In fact, some people think it's a little unusual, a little weird. Um, sometimes they think that we're broken. When sometimes people invite me to come and be with them or visit them or meet with them or work with them, I usually decline and go, thank you, no, I'm just going to handle it from here and here. When I'm saying that is my home office, this is just a, a lovely little room I've got set up, decorated with, you know, nice nautical touches because I really do love um, ships and boats in the sea. So I've got um, a massive bookcase on one wall that's filled with some of my favorite books. And it's not the only bookcase I have in the house, of course. And I have a window seat right underneath of the window so that I can sit with my back propped up by nice pretty pillows that I've made myself and I can look out the window and see the river because I live right along the west branch of the Susquehanna. I have a nice whiteboard on one wall where I'm able to take notes and, you know, write out some of the plots for some of my other stories and books. And I have a set of French doors that lead out to the front of the yard. And I, so I, I'm surrounded by light in this room and it's a very cozy, very lovely very welcoming room, and it's filled with my favorite objects. So why would I want to leave? I also have this really awesome dog named Chubbers. She's been working with me here in the home office for 13 years, and I've got this cat, Miles. He's been here for about 12 years. He's he's okay. He's all right. You know, he's really just a big black um, doorstop, you know, but Still, he's part of the routine. He's part of the part of the work team here. But anyway, back to this book by Sarah Maitland. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some of the things she writes in this book, which is basically a guide 
on how to be alone, how to overcome fear, and how to understand why so many people don't want us to be alone. So without further ado, let's get started. Okay, so before I jump into talking about this book, I need to explain that this book deals quite a bit with the ideas of introversion and extroversion and the, the idea of respecting the difference. You may have gathered from me telling you that I enjoy being alone, that I have introverted qualities. I actually have extreme introverted qualities. Bernard Shaw once said, do not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They may have very different tastes. So how much solitude does a person really need? There's no real answer to this because everyone is different. Now, personality traits like introversion and extroversion were studied by Carl Jung, who published in 1921 the definition of these personality traits. It turns out that there are probably 16 personality types and, you know, quite possibly, you know, one of these personality fits you just as well as one of them fits me. I know that a lot of people hate to be labeled, but the concept that people are knowable, that the brain performs in a specific way, that is quite well known. You know, there's no getting around that. And you do have a personality. You know that. But what kind of personality do you have? My personality type is a very logical personality type. It uses the initials INTP, and I'll get into that a little bit more. But what a logician is, is an innovative inventor with an unquenchable thirst for knowledge. So when I first heard about that personality type, I went, yeah, it sounds kind of okay. Yeah, that sounds like me. But what exactly am I? Well, this personality type turns out is, you know, probably pretty rare. Only about 3% of the people um, in the world are INTP personality types. And even fewer are women like I am. So it's a good thing for me, you know. Because if there were more, um, I wouldn't be too happy. I would be common. I kind of pride myself on being inventive and creative and having a unique perspective and, and a very vigorous intellect. Um, INTP per persons are usually known as like the philosophers, the architects, the dreamy professors. And you may know that I do um, actually teach at Lycoming College. So, you know, I can go more into this. But I invite you to actually take a look at um, Carl Jung's personality types and think about whether or not you have a distinct personality and whether or not you're more extroverted or introverted. So how much solitude do you need? Well, let's take a look at this little brief introduction to extroverts and introverts. Extroverts are action-oriented while introverts are thought-oriented. Extroverts seek breadth of knowledge and influence. Introverts seek depth of knowledge and influence. Extroverts prefer more frequent interaction 
while introverts prefer more substantial interaction. Extroverts recharge their energy by spending time with people, while introverts recharge their energy by spending time alone. So this is true for me. I definitely need to be alone. I need to charge my batteries by being alone. When I'm around people, I almost become a little maniacal. I become very excited and outgoing. And um, this is basically, you know, a little symptom of my attention deficit disorder. So whereas people might think I'm an extrovert, the truth is I am an introverted individual. One of the things that you also should know is that Americans live in an extroverted society that rewards extroverted behaviors and rejects introversion. Extroverted societies, they've been described as validating the culture of personality, whereas cultures of character are where people are valued for their inner selves and their moral rectitude. The culture of personality is so popular in America because it is the personality that helps sell, sell, sell. So a little bit of background about this author, Sarah Maitland. Sarah Maitland has been living alone in a house she built on a dead-end road up in the Scottish Moors for about 20 years. This came about because she was married and she had children, but her marriage collapsed. And so she moved into a little thatched cottage, you know, to lick her wounds and become the tragic figure in a novel. Um, and then she discovered she liked it. She discovered that she enjoyed being alone. She became fascinated with silence and what happens to the human spirit, to the identity and personality when talking stops. When you press the off button, when you venture out into enormous emptiness. She was interested in silence as a lost cultural phenomenon, as a thing of beauty and as space that had to be explored and used over and over and again by different individuals in wild spaces. Now, of course, the idea of becoming alone is not a new one. Um, there's a, you know, quite a bit of history written about different hermits, but also about people who are explorers. So, for example, Richard Byrd, the U.S. Admiral and explorer, who explained why he wanted to spend a winter alone on the polar ice cap in 1934. He said, I wanted to go for experience's sake. One man's desire to know that kind of experience to the full to be able to live exactly as I chose, obedient to no necessities but those imposed by wind and night and cold, and to no man's law but my own. Of course, you don't have to go to Antarctica to experience that same kind of freedom, right? You could actually just start slowly, start simply. You could step into the bathroom, close the door, and lock it, and you're alone. People don't always venture into the bathroom when somebody else is in there. So that's why a lot of people actually set up books, little bookcases in their bathrooms or magazine baskets, and they'll just sit in there and be alone. It's a way to get away, to get away from what's happening in the world. But more about Sarah Maitland. Now, Sarah is not a hermit, not by a long shot. Even though she lives alone in a house on the moor, 
She was married. She has children. These children still visit her. She goes to church on a regular basis, and she's a writer. Okay, so, you know, she's not completely, you know, out of the loop. There are different shepherds around her that she'll see moving their sheep from one field to the other. She'll see the postman on a regular basis. She goes shopping, you know, so she's not completely shut off from the world. And she has a phone. So let's think about why are people so distressed by the thought that Sarah lives alone? Because there are people who are afraid of that. And that's why she actually wrote this book. To tackle that topic, there are people who think that loners are either sad, mad, or bad, according to Sarah Maitland. They're projecting the psychopathy onto people that they do not agree with, especially about values. And this is an old strategy. They're saying that people who are alone are sad and therefore they are mad. And this is a good cover for fear. There's an alternative, though. They are not sad and therefore they are bad. Sarah writes about her own mother, who was widowed after being married for maybe 40, 50 years. Now, this woman lived herself alone for 20 years after her husband passed away, but she did not enjoy being alone. She had more extroverted qualities and she enjoyed going out in society. And when her own daughter experienced a a break in her marriage and went to live alone, it distressed the mother. And she made it her mission to, to bring Sarah out, to bring her into the fold again. She kept up this sustained attack on her daughter's moral status, telling her daughter that she was being selfish. It was selfish for her to live on her own and enjoy it because the mother wasn't enjoying being alone. Let's look into that a little bit more. So what are some activities that you can do alone? Activities that are still fun and full of leisure. Well, you know that you can go for a run. You could go for a jog. And if you don't like to do any of those things, you could go for a walk. Some people enjoy gardening. Some people listen to music. And they even perform music, practice and play. My husband has a workshop down in the basement where he does woodwork. He creates this furniture that I was speaking about, these beautiful bookcases, my window seat, his office desk. But one of the biggest problems with having an activity that you want to do, and especially when you want to do alone, is that as a society, we've become leisure poor. What that means is we don't have time. Well, at least that's the excuse we give. I don't have time. I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time to walk the dog. I don't have time to go visit, you know, that landmark or that church or that site. But the truth is, the reason why we are so leisure poor is because we're working so many hours to buy things. We're filling our lives with things that we don't need that are just going to require more maintenance. And I realize that this is a discussion for a different podcast, one on minimalism. But think about it. Think about the fact that you're working all the time so that you can have that house, that car, 
those TVs in every one of those empty rooms. Is that what you really need? Is that what you really want? Sometimes, you know, being a mentalist is a good thing. But we work longer hours to buy those things, and then we spend more time managing them, and we're becoming money richer, but we're becoming leisure poor. Hmm. One of the things that you can do is you can spend some time exploring reverie. And I'm talking about daydreaming here. Daydreaming as, you know, a, a technique for being alone when you're in a group of people. If there's a, you know, perhaps you're at work and I know you should be working, but what if you were to take about four or five minutes and just travel back in your mind to a happier time? There's a word for this technique for reverie. And it was, again, I'm going to bring up Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst. In 1913, psychoanalyst Carl Jung was, he had broken off with his friend and mentor Freud. He was alone. He was also becoming isolated because of the impending world war. He found himself breaking down. He had a horrible confrontation with the unconscious. And he said that he was hearing voices and having hallucinations. He became terrified that he was becoming psychotic. So what did he do as a psychoanalyst? He decided to confront his fears with a, with a form of self-analysis. In solitude, he worked himself into a state of reverie, a kind of concentrated daydreaming, which he called active imagination. He deliberately and as detachedly as possible, work through his own memories and dreams and his emotional reactions to them. And then he recorded these sessions in his notebooks. He came to believe that this had proved valuable. And in later clinical practice, especially with some of the older people that he would see, he would teach them this technique. Even without Young's alarming experiences, reverie is a useful way of setting boundaries and patterns an initial exploration of solitude. Just place yourself in an area of comfort and safety and then actively seek those significant memories. Think about one time when you were very happy. Use your active imagination and remember feeling joyfully bound up in the whole earth and universe. If you can think back to those moments of extreme bliss and happiness, chances are you were probably alone when you did it. This is a particularly free-roaming, solitary pursuit for highly creative people as well. So let's talk about my favorite type of loner, the solo traveler and solo adventure. My favorite kinds of books to buy are adventure books about people who go off on their own and do extraordinary things. For example, Rob, Robin Knox Johnson circumnavigated the world in a sailboat all by himself. Of course, he wasn't the first person to do this. Joshua Slocum did it in the late 19th century. He sailed around the world alone, and when he came home, he gave presentations and lectures. He had taken many photographs 
along the way, and he was just revered. The same kind of history plays out in mountaineering. We know that solo sailors can travel around the world, but then there are the people who enjoy going to the mountains. Everest was first climbed in 1952 by Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. That's right, all by themselves. The pattern is fairly constant with many forms of extreme adventure. It's harder to do these sort of things alone. And so it becomes more of a challenge and for more people, a heroic endeavor. So it gets to be a pretty appealing kind of story. If you want to do some kind of experiments with being alone, sometimes it's easier to do it by making it an adventure than staying safely at home. For example, my solo camping trip. Did I mention that I saw a little baby black bear on one of my walks with Chubbers and that the mama bear possibly was on the other side of those bushes? Well, that was a little bit harrowing for me. So, of course, right after I saw that baby bear, we turned around and I went back to the camper and I closed the door, stayed inside for a few minutes to make sure the coast was clear. But still, it was a little adventure. I was on the cusp of the great outdoors. Of course, I did have the safety of the camper there, too. So think about it. If you want to do something difficult, something that people are going to openly criticize in your social circle, think about how you could phrase it. Instead of saying something like, I'm going to take my holiday alone this year, you can say, I want an adventure. I'm going to walk the West Highland Way. I'm going to cycle to Istanbul. I'm going to camp on an uninhabited island. Solo will get you all sorts of interest and support. People are going to be curious. They're going to be amused. And they're far less likely to regard you as being crazy. Henry Thoreau wrote about this sense of empowerment in Walden when he explained why he had gone to live alone in the woods in Connecticut for two years. He says... I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and to see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation, unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and spartan-like as to put rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if it proved to be mean, why then get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world, or if that were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion." I do not propose to write an ode to dejection, but to brag as lustily as Chanchelier in the morning, standing on his roost, if only to wake up my neighbors. Richard Byrd, the U.S. Admiral and Explorer, gave a similar explanation in the opening of his book, Alone. He spent seven months in the Antarctic. He says, I wanted to go for experience's sake. One man's desire to know the kind of experience to the fool, to taste solitude long enough to find out how good 
It really was. I wanted something more than just privacy. I would be able to live exactly as I chose, obedient to no necessities, but those imposed by wind and night and cold, and to no man's law but my own. We experienced this also with George Mallory, who disappeared on Mount Everest in 1924 on his third attempt to reach the summit. His answer to why he had to do it is because it's there. Thoreau and Bird, along with many others, seem to be saying, because I am me. They are doing these things to explore their inner world as much as the external one. So why are solo adventures so important? And what can you do? How can you build up slowly? Well, you can push yourself, push your boundaries by doing something like traveling on a bicycle. Decide you're going to take a bicycle tour. The CNO Canal on the East Coast is 180 miles long, and a lot of people enjoy hiking and biking it. There are bed and breakfasts along the way, so if 180 miles is not something you can do in a weekend and camp overnight, then consider doing it in, you know, small breaks. Or take a pilgrimage. Take a pilgrimage to all the cathedrals and churches in Europe. Or camp alone like I did. Even if it's only in your backyard, you don't have to go to a campground. Or you can go somewhere and do something, learn something new. For example, go scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef. My husband and I took up scuba diving a couple of years ago so that we could take an adventure. And it's been a blast. I've really enjoyed it. But we also do things like go to art galleries in New York over the Christmas holidays, we spent a day exploring the Metropolitan Museum, and it was a wonderful experience. Tonight, we're getting ready to go to a concert to see the Chieftains perform. So push your boundaries, try something new. But the idea is to have the expectation of having some kind of new fun. The rewards are a double freedom. The freedom of knowing yourself and pleasing yourself beyond your comfort zone and a deep sense of achievement. You've done something new that some people are scared to do. Solo traveling and solo adventures gives you those freedoms. And they also attract admiration and sometimes even envy because a lot of people won't even dare to do this. My own daughter is an explorer, an adventurer. In a few days, she's going to be traveling to Costa Rica and then on to Panama and quite possibly Guatemala. And this is just on the heels of her coming home from Portugal. She spent the new year in Paris, and she did all of this alone. She also went to a conference in Montreal alone, and she went to a conference in Berkeley. In the past six months, since she's been alone, she has done a tremendous amount of adventures and exploring. And, you know, that, that's to be, you know, treasured. I'm proud of her for pushing her boundaries, for respecting differences, for not letting other people tell her what she needed to do, but instead thinking about what would make her happy. So let's talk about some of the joys of being alone, some of the bliss that you can find in solitude. There are rewards that can be grouped into five different categories, although they overlap and they're not exclusive. 
Number one, according to Sarah Maitland, author of How to Be Alone, is a deeper consciousness of oneself. Number two, a deeper attunement to nature. Number three, a deeper relationship with the transcendent. This is the numinous, the divine, the spiritual. Number four, increased creativity. Number five, an increased sense of freedom. Think about that for a second. If you spend more time being alone, you're definitely going to increase your creative output. You're going to have a sense of freedom because with that sense of solitude comes a little bit of courage. You need to face the fear to be alone. Be brave. Know yourself. So when we're talking about consciousness of the self, what are we talking about? Here's a little Coptic monk in the Egyptian desert, William Dapplemeyer. Let me read this out loud to you. Many people think we come to the desert to punish ourselves because it is hot and dry and difficult to live in, said Father Dikokuros. But it's not true. We come because we love it here. What is there to love about the desert? We love the peace. You can pray anywhere. After all, God is everywhere, so you can find him everywhere. But in the desert, in the pure, clean atmosphere, in the silence, there you can find yourself. So what is the self that you're trying to look for? That's an interesting question. If the self is just me, then how can I lose it? Or for that matter, how can I find it? Oliver Morgan, quoting from Cox Solitude, one of the books that I mentioned earlier and I'm going to put in the show notes, says, I can sense that my person is pulling back from its scattering into the details and plans of today, like a wave rolling from the sand and shore back to the ocean source, collecting itself into a unity of ocean. I am here present to myself and available for a possible revelation of what is inside me. I am present, too, for experiences of those guiding inner images, personal metaphors, archetypes, and I sense shape my values, actions, judgments, and decisions during the rest of the time. So it's a deep one, consciousness of self, but you don't have to be so grandiose. You could just, you know... Realize who you are, who you want to be, and non-judgmental. This is actually quite closely linked to something called mindfulness. This is when you let yourself quiet and just be relaxed and notice what is happening around you and what is happening to you and inside of you. And you're non-judgmental. You're not reacting. You're simply acknowledging the fact that you're sitting there. That you're cold. That you're hot. That you're hungry. That you're, you're full. That you're anxious. That you're sad. That you're happy. You're confident. You're brave. You're fearful. Just acknowledge all of the different things that you can be, even at once. 
and be non-judgmental. Don't pass blame. Don't feel guilt. Let it go. Now we're talking about attunement to nature, which was number two. Sarah Maitland said that she loves the word attunement to describe a widely shared sense that there is something crucial about solitude in relation to an engagement with nature. How do you engage with nature? Do you do it through walks? Do you sit out in your yard, quiet and peaceful? Do you have a bird feeder? Or do you like to watch the birds? Just a couple of seconds ago, I turned my head and I looked out into the front yard and I saw two different morning doves walking around, picking at grass, picking up little pieces of, you know, string, and then lifting their little wings and heading over to the white pine tree and build their nest. Here it is, 35 degrees. It's still March. It's cold here. But these two morning doves who have stuck around all winter long are now building a nest because they're getting ready to lay eggs. What I didn't see was the lonely morning dove. This was not the only pair of morning doves that I had here this year. I had another pair. However, a hawk got one of them in September and there was a giant scattering of bird feathers in the driveway for a while. And that one lone goonie bird, I don't know if it is a male or a female, has stuck around all by itself, coming to the feeder, walking around, pecking at the seeds like a little chicken, all by itself. Then a couple of weeks ago, I noticed that a third couple, a third pair of morning doves or goonie birds, whatever you want to call them, showed up. And my little lonely Goonie bird tried to hang out with them, tried to get to know them, but they pushed him away. Said, nope, sorry, you're all by yourself. You see, birds mate for life. Quite often, most of them mate for life. And what that means is that this bird no longer has a mate. It needs someone else, another bird. Because it lost its mate and there's no other lone Goonie birds around, it's been alone for more than six months now, hanging out on the fringes all by itself. And when I watch that, I feel pretty sad for it. I also feel a little protective because, you know, this Goonie bird is living in my yard somewhere. And I try to keep it safe. And I try to make sure that when I put food in the bird feeder, I also put a big clump of food down on the patio so that this little bird can just walk to it and peck at it like a chicken. Because if you've ever seen a morning dove or goonie bird, as we call them in Florida, then you know that they're, they're rather large. They don't sit very easily on a bird feeder. So what are the things do I do to commune with nature here? I watch the river. I love living next to the water. I actually drove this road for five years waiting for a house to come on sale. I had noticed it from the far side of the river. I had put my kayak in and was kayaking around the river, learning how to use it. And I noticed on the you know opposite bank that there were some interesting looking houses. And I thought, who lives there? How can they afford a house on the river? Oh my goodness, those are beautiful. And so I started 
you know, exploring until I found this road. And then I drove it over and over and over again. There was a house at the end of the road that, you know, had been abandoned. Nobody was living there. It was falling apart. So I contacted the owner and I said, you know, hey, would you like to sell it? And they said, no, no. I asked a couple of times. Um, both times I got rejected. And eventually, whatever was wrong with the house was just too much for them to take care of. So they bulldozed it down and it became an empty lot. Then one day, my husband and I, nine years ago now, drove this road on a whim, didn't see anything, turned around at the end of the road because it's a dead end, headed back, and then I saw a little tiny sign hidden in the snow. And I said, stop, stop, stop. And we did. We stopped at the top of the driveway and looked down, saw this beautiful vista of the west branch of the Susquehanna River and the Loyal Sock Creek as it empties into the river. And without even stepping one foot into the house, we decided to buy it based on its location and its connection with nature. All right, now it's time for number three, relationship with the transcendent. Now, this is probably fairly easy for you. It's much more difficult for me. Sarah Maitland writes that for her, Personally, the transcendent is God. It is the desire for an ever more intimate relationship with God that drives her desire to be alone. And she has found that many of the great solitude seekers have the similar passion. Now, you don't know me, but I'm going to tell you something. Despite the fact that many of my friends have very deep religious beliefs, I was not raised with any type of religious inclination, any kind of background. My mother never took us to church. She never had me baptized. Um, just wasn't part of my upbringing. There was a family that lived across the street that was Catholic, and they took me to church with them a couple of times. And I thought it was a most unusual and entertaining activity, um, especially when, you know, they passed out the little white wafers and put them on your tongue, or they gave you, you know, red wine, tea, or some kind of juice to represent the um, sacrament. So, yeah, I was, I went to a Catholic church, and they gave me a little red Bible, um, and I still have that Bible to this day, but I never used the Bible the way most people use their Bible. I used it as a catch-all of keepsakes. So I would put pressed flowers in there. I would put old photos of family members, love notes, letters, interesting little tidbits that I might want to look at later. But I never used that Bible for its original purpose. A few times my mother took me to a doctor's office or a dentist's office. I would see a collection of Bible encyclopedias. Um, I think it's called the Bible story, like 10 volumes of blue books with the traditional, you know, white haired God and, you know, brown haired Jesus and his flock. And um, I, I thought that was very interesting. And I did persuade my mother to buy that collection of books for me so that I could read it. And I did read it. I, I enjoyed it very much. But by the time I was old enough to start reading, I was reading a lot. I was reading quite varied books. Um, so this was only one of many different types of books. 
for my 12th birthday, my mother gave me a um, encyclopedia, medical encyclopedia. So, you know, this is how impressionable I was. By the time I was 12, I had leprosy because I read it in my encyclopedia. When I was 14 and these small bumps were starting to appear on my chest, thanks to puberty, uh, I was convinced I had breast cancer because I was reading the medical encyclopedia and taking it literally as my Bible. I remember another book that I received when I was um, in, I think I was eight years old, maybe seven years old. One of my sister's best friends, her name was Cynthia. She felt a connection to me because my first name is Cynthia, Cynthia Robin. My parents never called me Cynthia, but she felt a connection. And so she gave me a book, which was, it was so interesting. It was this massive encyclopedia of humans. And it began way back in time, you know, but this was in the 60s, um, you know, so they didn't really have as much research performed by then. But it started with um, Neanderthals talking about Cro-Magnum and Neanderthals the, you know, Stone Age people. And then it went all the way up to um, John F. Kennedy, who had just recently been assassinated. So this book was cutting edge technology, an encyclopedia of civilization. And I thought that was the most fascinating book ever. And so looking back, looking back at the books that had the most impact on me as a child, one was the encyclopedia of people, and the Encyclopedia of Medicine. And those are probably why I decided to become an anthropologist eventually. The Encyclopedia of Bible Stories, I looked on, you know, as basically fairy tales. So I do not have that same connection to the transcendent, despite all of the wishes of my friends. And yes, sometimes I feel that something is missing. But I don't subscribe to cradle fear. I can't say that I believe in something just because I'm afraid if I don't. Okay, so number four is creativity. Just imagine what you can create when you're alone. Conversation enriches the understanding, but solitude is the school for genius, wrote Edward Gibbon. I do maintain a relationship with the outside world. I teach at a local college. And in fact, I'm going to be heading over there within a half an hour um, to teach my um, event planning class. And I do that so that I can stay connected with young people and, you know, understand what's important to them and also share my knowledge. But for the most part, I enjoy being alone. I like to read what other people have written I like to watch videos that other people have made, and I like to listen to music. And these are all inspiring to me. But I find that my creativity is at its height after I've traveled somewhere, traveled abroad especially. One of my favorite things to do with my husband is to go away for a couple of weeks, and then my most favorite thing to do is to come home. But while we're abroad, I, I am immersed in this world, just infused with all of these brand new sights and these sounds and different people and accents and foods and landmarks. And when I come home, it's generally with an idea for a new novel, a new short story, 
something I might want to create. So creativity is something that it doesn't spring from solitude, but that's where we create it. That's where we work on it, where we roll up our sleeves and get the job done. <sighs> so in a room of one's own, Virginia Woolf argues very convincingly that the reason there were so few great women writers is that it was so difficult for them to be alone. A writer needed a room of her own and enough money to occupy it. Women were not lacking in talent, intelligence, energy, or imagination. They were lacking in solitude. Obviously, they didn't have the bathroom like we did. They would have to go out to the outhouse. And it was pretty cold there, spider webs, kind of stinky. It's not exactly the kind of place where you can close the toilet lid, have a seat with the door locked, and just be alone. A woman was always working. They very seldom had a chance to be alone long enough to be creative. Wolf describes the perfect woman as intensely sympathetic. She was immensely charming. She was utterly unselfish. She excelled in the difficult arts of family life. She sacrificed daily. If there was a chicken, she took the leg. If there was a draft, she sat in it. Above all, she was pure. This angel ghost prevented a woman from doing anything so assertive and aggressive as truly creative work. But Wolf goes on to suggest that this angel was a social construct in the interest of husbands, fathers, and men more generally. In order to kill the angel, which Wolf considered both necessary and difficult, you had to get away from all of the people who were projecting, were constructing the would-be writer, not as writer, but as an intensely sympathetic, pure, and unselfish woman. You had to get away from it. You had to be alone. And the last item is freedom. We value freedom highly in our society. Perhaps for the first time in history, we speak of it as an absolute and unalienable right for every human being. But it's really not that simple. In the first place, freedom has two dimensions. There is freedom from, and these are things that you dislike, things that blind you or limit you, like poverty, pain, fear. And then there's freedom too which I think is more important, more joyful, and more enriching. <sighs> so according to Sarah Maitland, author of How to Be Alone, it is this second dimension of freedom which has been associated with solitude. First, to work out what you desire to be free to do, and then to imagine and create the doing of it. Think about that. What are you interested in being free to do? We think about being free from things all the time, like we want to be free from our bills. We, we don't want this hanging over our head. We want to be free from that obligation, that responsibility. Maybe there was a nonprofit we signed up to help with, and now they're like bugging us, and we just don't want to do anything with them anymore. We wished we didn't have to get in our cars and drive on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday nights to a meeting somewhere to just sit there and listen to a bunch of people yammer about what we need to be doing. <sighs> That's freedom from. 
freedom from fear, of course, terrorism. There's so many different freedoms from that we can think of. But what do you want to be free to do? If you had the opportunity to be free to do something, at least one thing new this week, what would it be? What would this call to action be? Why are you compromised? Being solitary is being alone well. Being alone, luxuriously immersed in doings of your choice, aware of the fullness of your presence rather than the absence of others. Because solitude is an achievement. Think about that. This is from Alice Kohler. Solitude is an achievement. So I invite you to think about this, to give yourself permission to be free from and free to be alone. Free yourself from the fear and the discomfort, the social anxiety that being alone causes. Don't listen to other people. Listen to your heart. What would you be doing right now if you didn't have to do what you're doing? I know what I would be doing. There are many joys of solitude. But in this little book, Sarah Maitland outlined those that seem to me most obvious and to everyone's experience. If even one of those five rewards or benefits of being alone has content for you, and it generally appears that they do, then it's worth overcoming any fears or doubts you may have and embrace that freedom. At least try out some personal solitude and see what happens. It's an adventure. Think of it as homework. Go out, pick up a book, look at this little tiny book by Sarah Maitland, How to Be Alone. Look at other books, Solitude, for example. Respect the differences. Be conscious of yourself. Embrace that relationship with your transcendent. Allow yourself to be more creative and give yourself freedom. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, I hope you enjoyed my podcast today and that it motivates you to be alone. Give yourself permission to be weird, to be strange, antisocial, be a hermit, all of those hurtful negative labels that others give to people who prefer solitude. We know we're not any of those. So anyway, you can find me online at robinvanauken.com. While you're on my site, download my novel, West Wind. It's free. And speaking of free, I've got half a dozen free resources for writers and other creatives. So sign up today. Check out the episode and show notes at robinvanauken.com slash session 15. Thank you so much. And if you haven't done so, please hit that subscribe button on your device. Until next time, goodbye.